Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see you all. God bless you. Glad you're with us. Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. If you need a Bible, please raise your hand. One of the ushers or elders will bring you a Bible. Luke chapter 5. Anyone need a Bible? All right. Well, <clears throat> I was just talking with a beloved uh, over here a moment ago. And I was saying, hey, you know, it's a new year. This is awesome. I shared with first service that the Lord had just given me a, you know, every year the Lord's so compassionate, sort of give me a word and help me understand what the year is generally going to be like, you know. And, and I, was, I was saying to the Lord, what's, what's this year? And, and he just overwhelmed me with joy. It was just a, a year of joy and rejoicing, and it was going to be beautiful. Not that there's not going to be trials and tribulations, certainly, but last year I didn't get that. Last year it was like, oh, my, we're going, we're going into the, you know, the, the battle. And, and I'm not saying we're out of the battle, certainly. We always are serving in the battle. But just that the Lord is so gracious, and he just filled me with such a joy and such just love, and, and I'm just so encouraged by that. And I just want to encourage you all this morning in that because I, I really believe the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come, you know? And we, we, need, to, we need to just honor that, understand that Jesus Christ is on the throne, and because he's on the throne, you and I will live again, and no matter what happens in this life, it does not determine that way our destiny. Jesus Christ does, and him alone, and the gates of hell will never prevail against this church. So that's a blessing. That's a beautiful blessing. Let that be a word of encouragement to us all this year. Well, um, as we get to chapter 5 here, and um, we recount, if I can say it that way, Really, the works that Jesus had been done in the miracles, but also what Jesus came to do. I mean, we're in his second of three years, three and a half years of ministry. I always feel awkward saying that because Jesus' whole life was ministry, certainly. But I mean, we're in the, for, for you middle children, those that grew up sort of not the oldest, not the youngest, but you're in the middle of the pack of your brothers and sisters. Well, Jesus is in his middle years, if I can say that right, right? Year two, he's in the middle years that way. And He's gone, and he's already demonstrated he's Messiah. And that was really done through year one. John chapter one, well, two through five demonstrates that. As we move into Luke chapter five here, we're now going to be focused on really the calling of the disciples. We'll start to move up to that, but in particular, um, Peter. And, and this is really beautiful as he's going to turn around and he's going to press into Peter in a way. Now, this isn't the first time he met Peter, right? We know in John chapter 1, Jesus has already had an encounter with Peter. First, he had an encounter with Andrew. Andrew was a, a disciple of John the Baptist. And when John the Baptist had been proclaiming, you know, the kingdom of God is at hand, here, here's one I'm not even worthy to loose his sandal strap. He's pointing to Jesus. Andrew took that, recognizing he's speaking of Messiah. So he knew that that's who he was talking about. So what does Peter want to do? Like any of us want to do. He wants to go get his brother, his family, his friends, everyone. He wants to bring them to Jesus. Very good. He turns around. He says, Andrew says, I'm going to go get my brother, Simon. We know him as Peter. He runs and grabs him. He comes back. Oh, you know, and then they have this wonderful introduction, and that's right in John. So now years gone by. Peter has really gone back to what he's always known to do. He was a fisherman. He was a commercial fisherman, not just a guy that did this as hobby, but this was his livelihood. And he had just had a night shift because that's what fishermen do. Back in those days, 2,000 years ago, they would fish much through the night. They would come in in the early morning hours after they had finished their, 
their fishing and hopefully had a catch. They would come in, bring that in fresh. They would then obviously have the boat unloaded that way, the nets, and then they would make their way back home to sleep. Anybody in here ever work a night shift? You understand the only thing you're thinking about after your shift is over is you want to find your bed. That's where you're beelining to your house, your bed. You kiss your wife, you kiss your husband, whatever that, and then you want to go to sleep after a whole night of labor that way. Well, this is where Peter's at. Peter's tired. He had just been out fishing all night, and he caught nothing. This is not a good night. We also know from the other accounts in the harmony of the gospel, he owes some tax money. Tax time's coming. Monies are going to be due. He's kind of reaching in his pocket, and he's going, this isn't good. Peter's got a wife. He's got a family to take care of. It's real. It's real for Peter. I don't know what to do. He's probably coming in. He's probably distressed. He's probably upset. He labored all night, and he's got nothing to show for it. And so as he comes in, he's going to have an encounter with Jesus Christ. And this encounter is going to change him forever. Let's bow our heads and we'll pray. Father, the encounters we have with you, Lord Jesus, always change us forever, Lord. Each and every one of us have been changed by you because of your love, because of your truth, and because of the gift that you've given us on Calvary, the gift of reconciliation through the forgiveness of sin. Lord, I pray this morning, anoint your word as we continue to pray in this new year. And Lord, the only thing that is wonderful about this new year is you, Jesus, being at the center of all of it, the center of our lives, our marriages, families and friends. Lord God, we know that we're alive. There's breath in our lungs here this morning. That means there's still work to be done in this city. So God, I pray that you will move upon us mightily and then, Lord, if we haven't had this experience with Jesus Christ, the way that we're going to read with Peter here this morning, may we take this, whatever we need to, through your Holy Spirit, take away from this this morning, that you're not a God of condemnation, but you are a God of conviction, a God of love. And Lord, we are eternally thankful. We love you, and thank you for the blood that was spilled upon Calvary for all the remission of sin, past, present, and future. Now we bring you our hearts this morning, our minds, our souls, our strength. And we dedicate them unto you, Lord, for your good pleasure. And we pray and ask this through your strength, Jesus Christ, in your holy name, and all God's people pray. Amen. Chapter 5 of Luke, verse 1. So it was, as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret, and just let the video play for a minute here. You just kind of read that one verse, and it's like, oh, okay, what do you mean? He had gathered hundreds of people to the point of where there's not even room for him to stand on the seashore. There's so many people gathering to hear the teaching of the Word of God. What that would be like, huh? Church is just overflown. You'd have to knock down walls and everything else because people would be rushing in to hear the word of truth, the word of God. You know, I, I tune on sometimes the TV, you see the NFL, the stadiums are packed. You go to all these pack of this and that. And you know what? Have you ever thought, why aren't our churches in the days we're living in such a time as this, why are the churches not packed with people rushing in to receive God's truth? The only thing that can set us free is because there's an enemy. He's lied to them. He's made them believe they can do it themselves. They don't need God. They don't need his word. No, they can trust in their own ability. 
And I'm so glad that our Bible tells us contrary. Our Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is on the throne and he's interceding for you and I moment by moment. And so he was 2,000 years ago on that seashore. As he's on that sea, as he's gathered there on the lake of Gennesaret, and literally the multitudes are pressing in, he's beginning to be backed up because he wanted to make room. This wasn't like a forced situation. He knew, just like as if we're here, if there was more and more people that we didn't have room, the further back I go, what can we fit? More and more people in, right? We can fit more people in this way, maybe this way. Some people in the back could come forward, and that would allow other people to come and also be able to hear. They didn't have microphones. They didn't have an audio-video device. So this was all happening real time. And as he's gathering, Jesus is sensitive to this. He's sensitive. He wants every single person to hear the word of God. He doesn't want anybody to ever feel like I'm too far away and I couldn't hear you, Lord. I couldn't hear you because I'm, I'm, I'm so far back. No, not our Lord Jesus. He wants us to press in. And that's exactly what happened in verse two. And saw two boats standing by the lake, but the fishermen had gone from them and were wa washing their nets. Then he got into the one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little from the land. So Simon had come in. Simon's not over there listening to this. He knows who he is. He already had an introduction to him. He's Messiah. But does he believe? We can understand, but that's far different than truly believing in faith and trust. We know, but are we living it? Are we, are we engaging in that? Simon Peter, just in fairness, I mean, sometimes we beat up on him. I beat up on him a little bit, you know, Peter. But in this particular case, I'd be doing the same thing he was doing. I just worked all night. I'm tired. I came in. I didn't catch anything. I'm going to clean my nets. I'm going home and I'm going to sleep. And I'm going to pray on the way home, Lord, help me, because I don't know how I'm going to pay the bills. I don't know what's going to happen with my wife, how things are going to work out. They didn't have, you know, bankruptcy back then. No, there's debtor prisons. There were things like that. You know, you'd have to worry about your wife being taken from you and put into uh, slavery or something like that. It, it, they, this was real in those days. And it was a big deal. So he, he says, you know what? He, Jesus turns, he's looking at Peter, he's over there. He, he looks at a boat, there's two boats, he jumps into one of the boats. Why did he do that? So that more and more people could what? Press in. Press in so that they could come in here. He sits down. And he's going to start to teach. And also, there's some audio benefits on that. The water can actually amplify, act as a sort of radio, you know, the waves carry over that way, and the, the sound can carry off those sound waves, and people can hear. So Jesus finds the most optimal place where he knows that the word of God, through his voice, can travel the farthest and reach the most amount of people. And that was intentional. Maybe we should be thinking that way as well. And he sat down, and he taught the multitudes in the boat. And when he had stopped speaking, he taught until he finished. I think that's a good idea. He didn't say, well, I'm at the hour mark. We're, we're done for today. No, he, he, tended, he just taught until he finished. I, I think that's a really good idea. Until so the Lord, the Holy Spirit, was done speaking through him that way. And he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Now, this is significant. I shared, you know, I read this through first service. I had someone come up to me, a brother, and he says, you know, I've, I've read this passage a hundred times. 
He says, I'm, I'm in my 60s. He says, I never noticed this. Circle in your Bible nets, plural. This is very, very important. He says, Jesus, let down your nets for a catch. Now, let's go back to Peter's perception. Peter's a commercial fisherman. Yes, Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. Absolutely, he's the master. But what is Peter thinking at that moment? The same thing you and I'd be thinking. I was just out there. I know where to fish. I'm the commercial fisherman, Jesus. I, I know your Lord, but this is what I do. This is the gifting I've been given. I know this. This is what I know. And not only that, but do you realize what you're asking me to do and how ridiculous it sounds that you want me in the beginning morning hours, it's past the early sunrise, more later, that you want me to now go out where the reflection of the nets and everything else being cast into the sea is going to be seen by the fish and they're all going to scatter. I couldn't catch them last night when it was dark and they couldn't see the prime time for a commercial fisherman to fish. And now you want me to do it in the broad of day? The worst time to ever fish? This is what I do, Jesus. I know this. I got this. That's what Jesus was thinking. No, no. That's what Peter was thinking. What was Jesus thinking? I'm about to bless your socks off. And you're, you don't even know it's coming. All I want you to do is be obedient. Because you can't outgive God. What, what do you mean? Well, it was very clear that Jesus had taken one of Peter's boats, right? And he's using his boat, and Peter had come back empty-handed. There was nothing. He, he, certainly God knew what Peter needed, the tax, bills to pay, things like that. He knew all that was before him. God knows every single detail of our lives. He knows the circumstances Peter's in, and he's pulling Peter away from cleaning the nets and saying, come on, we're going to go back out. God, you don't think God's going to bless me? You can't outgive God. I, I, I've, I've tested this. I encourage you to try it. I, when I used to work for Microsoft years, you know, I was able to financially do certain things, give, and I would always say, okay, Lord, let's, and I could never outgive God. I really couldn't. I could never outgive God. I tried. And I'm not saying that in a, in a uh, you know, holier than thou way. And then I tried to test the scripture. I wish I could tell you that it was from a different heart here this morning. And I'll never lie to you. It wasn't necessarily from that heart. It was, really, Lord? And my conclusion is I can never outgive God. I can't outgive God. No matter how I try, you, you could sell everything, you leave everything, you can move your whole life, you can do, and God will still bless your socks off and you will never be indebted to him. Or excuse me, he'll never be indebted to you, I meant to say. Forgive me for saying that in reversed. You will never, never, he will never ever be indebted to you that way. He just always shows himself faithful. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. He's being respectful, isn't he? he Peter's being respectful. He, he's not acting like a know-it-all in this particular situation, but he's just looking at him. Maybe he was thinking, I'm going to protect you, Lord. I'm going to be your Holy Spirit because you need a Holy Spirit, God. I'm going to be your Holy Spirit. You can... Detect the cynicism in my voice. We've done that, haven't we? We know better. We see God. God's called, given a word to some. We have to help God, right? That's our, it's our, no. No, it's a bad idea. What's he do? 
He says, I caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down my nets or my net. Please circle it. Did you see that? Jesus had commanded him to let down, plural, your nets. The blessing is coming. This is God's very best for you. But in the reasoning of man, Peter says, I'll let down my net, singular. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net, singular, was breaking. So they got a problem because they let down the net. Now the net is filling up so abundantly that they don't know what to do to the point of where they're going to be in a situation where their boat's about to sink. Now, not only would, if Peter's boat sank, that'd be a big deal. He's a commercial fisherman. How would he continue his livelihood? You know, God could have let it sink, couldn't he have? Because we all know how it plays out, right? Our, you know, looking back, so hindsight's twenty twenty, right? We can look. We know the account. We have the word of God. We know how this is going to end. That Jesus is going to call Peter into full time ministry to be a disciple maker. He's not going to ever need that boat again. But Peter doesn't know that yet. So the nets are breaking. Makes sense when God said nets. Now he knew what he was about to do. He's going to bless his socks off, his very best. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, father owned a commercial fisherman, you know, business as well. He calls the boat. Did Jesus say to do that? No, no, he didn't. He says, you put out your nets, but they get in trouble. So what do they do? They reach out. They've got the Lord right next to him. How about, well, Jesus I know I'm a little hard-headed. What do I do now? You're right next to me. You clearly just made this happen. No, no, no. I'm not going to run to the Lord in this one. I still have to, be, I have to be the Holy Spirit. Hey, you, John. Hey, you, James. Come on over. You're not going to believe it. We got all this fish. This is wonderful. Does God say a word? Does Jesus turn around and go, come on, Peter. No, he, he's going to allow this, even though it's not necessarily what God had commanded in this situation. But there's a reason for that. Even when we can't see that, we would read this and go, it's complete disobedience. But yet, God can work through that too, can he? He can work through that. Not that that's the, again, we already know, Peter missed out on that initial blessing of the nets, right? I think we all, we're, we're following along. But even when we blow it and we misguided or misdirected and we get off that path, is God not ever so gracious to redirect us right back to that? And even sometimes use our misdirection without punishment? He's so gracious. So they signal their partners in the other boats, come and help them, right? And they came and filled both boats both boats. It's just the blessing just keeps coming so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down to Jesus at Jesus's knees saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. You know, verse eight shows us a transition here of all that's happening. 
What is happening in Peter's heart at this moment? This is what Peter does. He's never seen anything like this before. Peter's the guy. He's a commercial fisherman. This is what he knows. It's what he's known his whole life. And he falls down. He gets before the Lord. Even as an expert fisherman, he realizes something. He realizes he sinned. And how did he sin? Was it just disobedience? Because that's certainly one of the sins we see here. Or was it the sin of thinking that he knew more than God? No matter how comfortable, how confident, how distinguished and accomplished he was as a, as a fisherman, a person, a master of his trade, had he gotten so comfortable being the Holy Spirit that he failed to recognize that God is sovereign over all, including everything we think, do, put our hands to, and experience. He has this humbling moment. Depart from me. He recognizes what the problem is. It's from a sinful man. That's his reaction. Again, remember, it's not the first time he's meeting Jesus. John 1, verse 35 through 42. He knew. He knew who Jesus was. But it took Jesus coming into his life in such a personal way that he would begin to believe. It was an identity of who Jesus was. He knew who he was previously. He had, John the Baptist says, he's the Messiah. That was already disclosed. That was already given. But what it took for Peter in this moment, because of who he was and what he was going through, is it took, can I say it this way? And, and please, I don't mean it the wrong way. I know it's God's world, so I'll say it that way. It's the Lord's world. But I'm going to use it this way in, in vernacular. It took Peter's world to be shaken. It took God to come into Peter's world in a way that Peter could experience or understand. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ does. When we have a willing heart and a pure heart, God will come into our circle and he'll change everything. He'll redefine things for us that we took for granted, thought we knew, were very confident in. And he'll show us. He'll demonstrate to us. He'll teach us. No matter how experienced we believe we are, He's faithful. And so Peter's response is, is in some ways beautiful, right? He, he has this humbling moment. He knows he needs to repent. He, he knows he's standing before Messiah. He already knew that. He believes, and, and he's seeing what he's never seen in his life. Uh, 20, 30 years of, of, of fishing, he's never, ever seen these nets fill up to the point of where the boat's going to sink. He doesn't know what to do. He's calling friends in, come help. I don't know what's going on here. He's, he's out of his mind. He doesn't know what to do. And God is doing this not to hurt Peter. He's blessing Peter. This is a blessing to this man and to all those that are gathered because they're going to pay all their debt off. God's going to go before him. He's going to take care of everything for Peter. But in the moment of this, Peter's recognizing his heart. He's seeing what's really in there. And he's coming away recognizing, boy, I'm seeing the perfect God standing before me and I'm seeing my frailty in this, my lack of 
the fact that my iniquity stands before me and that he's a sinful man. I'm a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished. It means even the multitudes that are watching this on the show, they're, they're all taking this in. At the catch of fish which they had taken, they're not astonished that Peter's humbling himself before the Lord. They're astonished by the works of God. But something far different is happening in Peter's heart at this moment. Please don't miss this. It's what happened in your heart. It's what happened in my heart. It hasn't changed in 2,000 years. When the Lord gets all of your heart and you begin to see things through Jesus' eyes, when you begin to know who he is in your life and the power he has before you and his love and truth, you're like, you just begin to melt. There's no, there's no pride at that moment. I'm the greatest fisherman in the world. You're on your knees where you, and you and I belong. Who am I? How much money I have? How much money I don't? None of that matters. You're not thinking that. Well, I've, I've run this many businesses. I do this. I've done this for 40 years. None of that matters. You're standing before God. Everything has changed. And he knows it, and you know it. And you begin to marvel. And you begin to look at your own inadequacy. And you know there's something that's got to be done there. Because the equation doesn't work. You can't stay in that place. It's not good. You, you, you'll be destroyed in, in, inside your guts. It'll, you can't stand in that place like that. It'll make you vomit. You're, you, you know your sin. You're, si you're sick of it. And you're looking for it to be taken from you. And verse 10, so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were partners with Simon. They're all, all are being pulled into this because that's exactly what Jesus allowed, didn't he? Why did he allow this? Why did he allow what he didn't command? Hey, boys, come on over and help. Because what is he doing? He's allowing them to be brought to God. Jesus is allowing this. Even though it's not what God called out that way specifically for Peter, he's allowing it so that James and John also could be brought to Jesus and have this moment. And Jesus said to Simon, and I think this is so beautiful, in the, right in the middle of this anxious situation, this is very anxious for Peter. There's anxiety all over the place on this. Your paper should be, I mean, the paper this word of God's written on should be dripping because you read it and it's just, and what does Jesus say? I told you. No, you don't find that anywhere in your, I told you, no. And you know what he says? So, my God, look what my God, look what my Jesus says. Do not be afraid. From now on, you're going to catch men. Apology accepted. Apology accepted. Peter, apology accepted. Simon, apology accepted. He doesn't continue to deal in condemnation. When you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have an enemy. That's, that's, that's the fact. Satan, the world, and the flesh. That's a fact. Scripture teaches that. When you begin to choose righteousness, or you blow it, because we're all going to blow it. Peter's going to blow it again several times, right? But God ultimately knows he's going to reconcile Peter. Peter's going to get reconciled because he knows what? Peter's heart. 
He didn't expect Peter to be perfect. Otherwise, he never would have chose Peter. He's not setting Peter up for failure, is he? Just like he's not setting you and I up for failure. He didn't expect Peter to be perfect. He knew his heart, and he knew what he was capable of. This moment, ultimate surrender, ultimate humility, coming before the one true God, receiving and believing, willing to walk away from everything else because it, can, it pales in comparison to what Jesus Christ offers for the rest of your life and throughout all of eternity. Don't be afraid. Don't you be afraid. Don't have that moment where am I losing my mind? I'm getting too serious about this. This is consuming me. It's not I just come to church on Sundays. I come to midweek on Wednesdays. I'm in the Old Testament. I'm in the New Testament. My whole family revolves around our studying the Word of God. We talk about it in our homes. We have Bible studies. Jesus Christ is the center of my marriage, the center of my children's life. Everything we do culminates around God. It doesn't look like my friends that go to church. It doesn't look like what they're doing over here. It doesn't look like it's a... Don't you worry about that. You do what the Lord is calling you to do. Much is given, much is required. But don't you be afraid. You're not losing your mind. You're not crazy. Your eyes are wide open, just like Peter, sitting on his knees, or however you want to put it. And he's looking at God, and he's looking at him for the first time as God. Not just Jesus of Nazareth. Who is Jesus to you? That question will change your life forever. Forever. Who is Jesus to you? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. They brought their boats to land, and what did they do? They forsook all. They turned around. Now, I want to be clear. He's not calling everybody to do this. He's not telling everybody, go home, sell everything you have, and you know, whatever you're going to do. That's not what he's doing. You know what he is telling you to do? He's telling you and I to take whatever's in between our heart and God, that jewel that's been there, that we call it a jewel, it's not, but it looks that way, that we hold on to, we trust in, whether it's money or materialism or spouses, children, a work, a job, fill in the blank. Whatever's in that place, that's what needs to be forsaken because that's what's holding you back from pressing all in. Don't be afraid. They forsook all and followed him. Did you know what this would have, Zebedee didn't turn around and go, boys, where are you going? What are you doing? No, they had to answer their calling. Peter didn't turn around and say, but if I, I have a wife and I have a responsibility, I, I have to take care of my, and very much so. There was no uh, social system back then to care for your spouse. If you would, you know, there was nothing like, there was no net, uh, excuse the pun, nothing like that. But Jesus knew. A house divided will fall. It will always fall. 
And what he's doing for these boys is he's setting them free from themselves, from the stretching of the world, one foot in the world, one foot in the kingdom. And he's laser focusing them on being disciple makers, which is exactly what you and I are called to be as well. It hasn't changed in 2,000 years. Some of you do it at your jobs. Some of you do it in your homes, parents, grandparents, family. Some of you do it in your neighborhood, your friends. Some of you come out to the table out here on Mondays for the bread ministry. You've met and invested in the neighbors. You get to know the community around you. They have begun to trust you, and you, you've demonstrated the love of Jesus Christ to them. And you know that it's not a bait and switch. They know it's not a bait and switch. You've forsaken all to follow him. Again, this doesn't mean that everybody needs to sell everything, and it's not what he's saying. He called these boys to do that. These boys are going into full-time ministry. That's what he's called these boys to do. You have to answer your calling. And it happened when he was in a certain city that, behold, a man who was full of leprosy saw Jesus and fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. This is very, very interesting here, friends. A certain city. What city was that? It doesn't matter. We're not told because it's not relative to the account. What does matter and what's in, in focus here is this man that's got leprosy, a leprous man. And not only that, he's full of it. That, that in the Greek, when it says it's full of it, he's talking about this is an advanced stage or advanced case of leprosy. This is a stage four, if there's even something beyond that, full of cancer, spread through the whole body. This is where he's at. Everybody else has written him off. This man is an outcast. He's unclean. He's got to walk around everywhere. I'm unclean. I'm unclean. He's not around a lot, you know. He's treated as an outcast every day of his life. And now it's so far progressed, he couldn't even hide it if he wanted to because he's full of leprosy. And he sees Jesus. And he runs up to him and he, he falls down and he says, I need you to take care of this right now. Just fix it. No, well, that's not what he asks. It's not what he says here. He says, Lord, if you're willing you can make me clean. He didn't say you could heal me. He said you can make me whole. See, we all need to be made whole. You can, you can make me clean. Now, I, I will say this, that in Scripture, every time we see the word leprosy, it's always, almost always symbolic of sin. That's right, sin. And it's never referred to someone with leprosy that you are healed, but you are cleansed. And that's why... It's a picture of sin because it's speaking of what happened in Calvary and what we always need, uh, he, the human condition. We need salvation. We need cleansing. He doesn't ask us. He doesn't say, Jesus, heal me right now this way. No, he says, cleanse me. I need to be cleansed. I need to be made whole. Notice with me that Jesus doesn't cry out, what are you doing? You're unclean. How dare you come up to me? 
Don't you understand I'm going to get a bad rap or reputation? Don't you understand I'm going to become filthy or dirty? Or you could make me leprous. Is Jesus worried about any of those things? Not at all. As a matter of fact, it says in verse 13, then he put out his hand and touched the man saying, I'm willing, be cleansed. So significant. In this man's life, was it 20 years? He's been struggling to get to full-on leprosy like that. Maybe 15 years, you know, his organs are starting to fail. This, is, this man is full-on diseased. Super contagious at that point, too, because it's, you know. And yet, this man hasn't been touched by another human being in 15 years. Can you imagine? I hope you can't what it feels like to not have the embrace of another person, whether it's a hug or a kiss or, or, or holding someone's hand or, or just knowing that somebody loves you enough to pull you in close and to tell you it's going to be okay. We all need that. I don't care if how tough you are here this morning. And I don't, I don't, I don't yeah, you do. Yes, you do. Everybody needs to know it's going to be okay. This man hasn't had human contact with another human being touched and even know what that feels like on his skin. That embrace. To even be close enough to smell someone, to, to, to know their fragrance, the fragrance of the Lord. And the first thing that Jesus does and doesn't just say, you're healed. Go ahead now. Just get away from me. No. My Jesus he reaches out his hands and he touches him. And I bet inside of his little heart there, he just, it began to enlarge. He's not an afterthought. He's not forget, you know, forgotten. There's a plan and purpose for this man's life too. And right now he's a vessel of the Lord. He's being used in his whole point leading up to this, all those years of illness, sickness, tribulation, difficulty, to the point of where he could stand and be this one, this man, this first man, in over a thousand years, only three men we ever read of in scripture that in one way or another had been healed of leprosy. I won't say cleansed, but healed, because we, we know Jesus Christ is the only one that can truly forgive sins and remove sin, cleanse, truly make us whole. But in a thousand years, my Bible in the Old Testament, only three people, only three. So much so that it's written in Leviticus 14. And he's going to tell this man, you're to go to the rabbi, you're to go to the high priest, you're to go to the temple, and you're to present yourself. And when you present yourself, you let them know that you've been cleansed, that you've been healed. And I bet the rabbi looked at him and said, I don't know what to do. They never taught us this in rabbi school. I don't know how to do this. This is under the law in Leviticus 14. We don't see this. There's no way to heal somebody permanently. With, we don't see this. Immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one. But go and show yourself to the priest. Again, according to the law in Leviticus 14. Never seen this before. And make an offering for your cleansing. As a testimony then. Just as Moses commanded the point is, is that the law 
and everything in your Old Testament, which is why we study it line by line and verse by verse on Wednesdays. And I would, all of you should be here for this. All of you need to be here. I need to be here for this. Because he's using the Old Testament, he's using the law to explain to them that this has always been pointing to me, to Jesus, to one that would complete and fulfill all. We're going to read that in the rest of chapter 5. We won't get there to, to today. But the idea of what God had planned, that he was to fulfill the law, but the law was always a tutor, right, Galatians, to draw us to him. Then the law is useless. It has of no use anymore to the human. And those that try to keep traditions and rituals and things that are of the law are wasting time. They're wasting their time. It's vanity. It's just another form of vanity. It's works. I'm not going to do this. I'm going to do this because I want to show my God. Wrong. Wrong. Shut it down. The minute you start doing that, you're already striving. You've already blown past the warning signs. Jesus has paid it all. Verse 15, however, the report went around concerning him all the more, and great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him, to, to be cleansed or to be healed. What are they really after? And look how he's going to respond to that as well, of their infirmities. So he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. And this is such a great encouragement for me uh, in times of the busyness of life where I just, I need to get away. I just need to be with the Lord. It's the, it's the sound. It's, it's, it's. It, it's overwhelming, the noise. It's overwhelming the noise today. And, and I need to get away so that I can allow Jesus Christ to break through that noise so I can hear the still small voice. Jesus did that. And he didn't, you know, back then they didn't have all the social, you know, the telephones, the radio, all the stuff we have today. It's great encouragement. It's great encouragement for you. you. We need to do this. What our Lord did. It's a beautiful example. Now, verse 17, he transitions. We know this uh, from Matthew's, the harmony of Matthew chapter 9 and uh, Luke chapter, Mark chapter 2. We know the harmony of the gospels. He is now transitioning to Capernaum. We know he's going to be in Capernaum at this point. We also know he's going to be in a home in Capernaum. Mark 2 tells us that. So we know that in verse from 16 to 17, he would do to pray, and then he goes to Capernaum at this point. Verse 17, now it happened on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who would come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Then behold, men were brought, or pardon me, then behold, men brought on a bed, a man who was paralyzed, whom they sought to bring in and lay before him. Mark's account tells us that there are, it's such a crowded situation. They can't even get to the house. They can't even figure out how to get near the house. There's that many people. And yet the love of this man, or these men, because there's four of them, we read in the other accounts, we get more details. The love that they have for this paralytic, this man that's paralyzed, we're not told he ever walked or what his situation of his, par you know, his paralysis was, we just know that this man is in this situation and his friends love him so much that they want to bring him to Jesus. And that, to me, is the, the, the quintessential definition of what real friendship looks like. What, if you're a real friend, what do you do? You bring people to Jesus. 
That's what it looks like. It's, you don't hold on to it just for yourself. We've, we just read that in the Old Testament on Wednesday night. We're in 2 Kings. It's, it's not about keeping it for us. You know, the last revival that we've had documented, you've heard me say this before, in the United States of America, was the Calvary Chapel. It was, it was the hippie. It was the, it was the revival of Calvary Chapel. It was, it was documented. It's actually been studied by UPenn and Philly. They interviewed Pastor Joe. You can read about it. It was the last documented revival. And you know what that revival started from? It wasn't started from Pastor Joe wearing a three-piece suit in his 50s. And I say that with all due respect. I love, love Pastor Joe. I'm not saying, or, or excuse me, uh, Chuck. I apologize. It wasn't Pastor Chuck. I, I love him. I'm not saying that in a negative way. I'm pointing to the fact that it was a move of the Holy Spirit. And it was a move on our young people. That the young people started coming out and they started coming to church and they were bringing their friends to meet Jesus. And they didn't care what they looked like. They didn't care that, you know, they didn't wear shoes. They didn't care about any of that. Make room. Rip the chairs out if that's the problem. Make room so people can come in and hear the word. And these young people bring in their friends. Thousands and thousands got saved. Church building couldn't hold them. They had a building of 150 people. The original Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa. Pastor Chuck, no, 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 get a tent. What else are you going to do in California? Put up a tent. You know, you know how expensive things are out there and built up, you know. Get a tent. And they start all sitting in the tent. Do you know that uh, uh, we still do that? It's still in the movement. We had a, a brother out in the Delta. They outgrew, they outgrew their, their, their fellowship hall. You know what he did? He put a tent up. And they're fellowshipping out. I, I, beautiful. I said, what, you know, what, what about when the snow comes? He says, we got guys. We just pull the snow down. I said, beautiful. Is it cold? I said, no, we got space heaters. The whole thing, it's beautiful. And I said, God can work through that, can he? And he goes, he always does. I was just really encouraged by that. And as we bought land and we're sitting there, we're like, okay, we got this building project. I'm like, Lord, put up a tent. If we got to wait for the building, put up a tent. Do what we got to do. But this man, he's being brought. Now, I just want, we don't, we're also not told whose house this is, by the way. And we know that he's going to take some tiles off. So that one of the four men are going to take tiles off this house to lower this man in. So somebody's house somewhere just got part of their roof removed, right? And they're like, just can you imagine you're the, the guy or the gal that owns that house? You say, well, there goes the roof, you know. I... <laughs> but when they start to witness what's happening here, oh, man, tear down the walls. Remove the walls. Knock them down. If that means people are going to get saved and set free, Rip this roof off, tear down the walls, let the word of God go forward. That's exactly the heart of these homeowners. Otherwise, I'm sure there would have been clamoring by the Pharisees. You ruined this poor woman's house, this poor man's house. We don't read that. It's, it's silent on our account. In all of the scriptures, it's silent that way. But if you think about it, you've, you've read this many times before maybe, or this is maybe the first time. I want you to think about that. They're going to somehow get out. They can't get to the house, but they're going to get on the roof and they're going to lower this paralytic down to be, they believe, healed. They, they believe that's the intention here. So they're getting ready to, to do this. But did you ever stop and think about it? Maybe we, we pause in the Selah, you're giving them, wait a minute, listen, right? Think about it. How did they get them up there? How did they get them up there? Somebody had to calculate in their head, okay, wait a minute. We know mm, the roof, nine foot, ten foot. Okay, we need a, a rope about nine feet long. We can tie four of them on each end. We got a plank that we're going to use as a bed. We'll lower this man down to be healed. I got that. Check. 
But how you get them up there is a totally different story. It's a lot easier to lower someone down than to try to take and lift someone up. How do you even get up there? I mean, does one of the first, you know, guys climb up on top of the roof? Does another guy put his hand out? Okay, you step on my, you know, oh, heave ho, get him up there. And then once you get him up on the roof, then what do you do? You still got a problem because you got three other guys down. So do you get all four up? And then what do you do? You have the gentleman sitting, the man sitting, uh, laying on the ground that way? You ever try to pull without a pulley system, something on a rope, you're on a roof, you're this way, you're pulling. What do you think that's going to do to the bed or the, the mat or the, 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 the table or so whatever he's laying on, the piece of wood, the plank? It's going to do this. Because as you pull, even if you try to pull at the same time, you, you're dealing with a right angle, right? Or depending on the pitch of the roof, it's still going to tip. Well, somehow they've, they have such love and such concern. I like to use the word intention. They have intention. They, they've prayed through this. They've thought about this. They were intentional that they get this man up there. That had to be the harder work. It's a lot of work to bring people to Jesus, isn't it? It's a lot of work. It's not just something like, hey, I wake up in the morning and I got five minutes. Hey, Susie, you want to come today? Rather than saying, hey, let's meet up for breakfast a little earlier this morning. I'll treat you. And then afterwards, why don't we go to fellowship or we'll have brunch together? We'll spend some time and then spend the day together. We invest in a brother or sister that way. That's a lot of work. It's a lot of work, isn't it? That's exactly what we see with these four men. They were intentional. They understood this was not going to be easy. They didn't even know how they were going to do it. But they believed and they trusted. And they said, we're going to do whatever we have to do to get this man to Jesus. Does every one of us have that passion in our hearts this morning? to bring our friends to Jesus? You know, I've often wondered if, if the church followed the scripture in that, I've wondered how soon do we have to add a third service here? I, I, I've prayed about it. I've thought about it. If we actually followed this and read and believed what we, and we brought our, how soon would we have to, the idea here is it doesn't begin with an afterthought. This is something that was premeditated. It's beautiful. It, it shows the intention of the heart. And that's what God's bringing out for us. There's all these details in here. They love this man. We don't even know how well they knew the man. We, it doesn't say, oh, they've known him for 20 years. They might have known him for one day. But they love him enough to be intentional. And when they could not, verse 19... And when they could not find how they might bring him in, because the crowd, they went up on the housetop and let him down with his bed through the tiling into the myths before Jesus. When he saw their faith, the friend's faith, he said to him, may your sins, man, your sins are forgiven you. Is that what he wanted to hear right at that moment? Or do you think he wanted to hear you're healed. But please recognize the priority here for our Lord. The priority is always the spiritual, then the physical. Throughout scripture, it's always spiritual, then physical. And God operates in that priority, spiritual, physical. So when he saw their faith, God was moved with compassion and love here. He said to a man, your sins are forgiven you. And I met that man sitting there that day. I don't think he was disappointed with that. 
I don't think he thought, well, that's not why I'm here. We don't read anything about that. I think he knew, just like you and I knew, in the depths of our depravity, that we needed a Savior. I don't think there's a single person here this morning, even if you're not a believer, that doesn't know that you and I can't save ourselves. We just can't do it. We've tried our whole lives, haven't we? We've tried our whole lives. We're not stupid or ignorant people, but we couldn't do it. That man knew that day what he was given as a gift was what he needed more than anything else in the whole world, even more than the physical calamity that he found himself in, even more than being paralyzed. He knew he needed to be spiritually reconciled to God. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, again, they're out celebrating, right? Oh, praise the Lord. This man's been sinned. No, no, no. They began to reason. This, this speaks something that's going on in their heart. They're cooking something up, in other words. This isn't like reasoning, like, I wonder why this happened. No, because we're going to be given in verse 22. They're going to they're turn around and describe, you know, even in the rest of verse 21, they're going to describe what's going on because he says, he, who is this that... Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? What they're actually challenging him on is that he's not what? God. Why would they reason that? Because they knew as religious leaders, they just were out of a job. Because if Messiah is standing right before you and God's standing right before you, what is the pastor to do? Every pastor has a choice in this. You decide to draw someone to Jesus Christ or you draw them to yourselves. Every man and woman has a choice in this as well, don't, don't we? What they said is actually correct, the latter half of it. Who can forgive sins but God alone? That's a, that's a correct statement. Gentlemen, now follow it to the next logical conclusion. If this man has actually done this and said that and been able to demonstrate through years of already two, second year here of ministry, miracles, and he's able to do these things, he is God. And instead of humbling yourself and worshiping religious leaders, the one true God, you'd instead rather continue to continue in your charlatan act, drawing men unto yourself, increasing your power. God's well aware of the motivation of the man in the heart, and he will deal with that accordingly. But when Jesus perceived, as we see, this is not something that's foreign to him. John 2, 24 tells us something similar. It's not a, Jesus sees the matter of the hearts, their thoughts. He answered and said to them, why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise up and walk? You know what he's saying? He's, What's easier? To say you're forgiven, which, oh, by the way, that's not measurable, is it? You, you don't, other than we know that, as Christ taught us, Jesus taught us, one who's forgiven, he'll bear fruit of righteousness, right? We can look at the tree and we can see these things. However, we also understand that when someone says, your sins are forgiven you, when we look at that person, if, if Jesus said to you personally, your sins are forgiven you, that's awesome, and praise the Lord, he means it, and he, he's the only one that can do that. But do you, is there a way that I could come up with like a meter or a monitor or something and go, dee, 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 dee
for those online or the radio, that was my attempt at a, a forgiveness meter. I don't know. But, but you get the point. He says, or is it easier to say rise up and walk? Because that can be measured, can it? If you saw somebody stand up and walk, you'd oh, oh, yo, no, no, no. I, yeah, yeah, he's the, he's the guy. That one becomes obvious. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He says that you would know that this would become a testimony. He says, I, I'm going to do this. He said to the man who was paralyzed, he looked at him. He had already given him what he needed. At that point, even if that man had not been healed from his paralysis, he had been getting everything he was going to need because he would go to meet Jesus Christ in heaven one day and all of his paralysis would be gone forever. This man will never be paralyzed or trapped again. He'll never be a captive again. But so that the people would understand and believe. He looks at them and he says, I say to you, rise, take up your bed and go to your house. This man hasn't walked maybe for 20 years. Does he even know how to walk? Does he even know how to put the muscle memory together? Any athletes in here, you ever got injured? You ever had something happen and you had to, what, go through physical therapy to build back to? Not so with the Lord. The Lord's whole in the way he does things. Immediately he rose up before them. He took up what he had been lying on and departed his own house glorifying God. And I'm so glad in here that there's no smart aleck that says, well, hey, if you just got healed, are you going to fix the roof? Because that's the way I think. No. They're so, they're marveling in what they saw. They don't even care about the roof. Again, the person who owns that house is like, knock down the walls. Jesus is Lord. And they're all amazed. This guy just starts worshiping. He's heading back. He's worshiping. And they glorified God and they were filled with fear. That idea of reverence here saying, we have seen strange things today. Friends, I look at you all. We're going to have communion here. It's beautiful, the new year. Praise the Lord. Pastor Bill's going to come up in a moment. But in my closing time with you here this morning, as we just read all this together, I have one question for you all. One question. What is the greatest miracle that was done in Capernaum? What was the greatest miracle that we had just read and witnessed through the reading of this word, what was the greatest miracle that was done? Clearly, it was the forgiving of sins. Clearly, it was the forgiveness of sins. The spiritual first, the physical second. That's our God. If you don't know Jesus Christ today, we're going to celebrate communion. We're going to partake of the elements together. What are you waiting for? Ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior and then partake with us and welcome to the family of God. Amen? Pastor Bill, will you come up and lead us in communion, please? Good morning. Let's pray as we prepare our hearts for communion. Heavenly Father, I just thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to worship you this morning and to hear your word, Lord, and to get built up and encouraged in your word, Lord. Lord, as we come to the communion table, uh, Lord, may we realize even more so, Lord, each time we gather for communion, uh, the, the tremendous sacrifice that you did for us is, 
your body was broken and your blood was shed for us, Lord, so that we, our sins, would be forgiven and we would be with you forever. So, Lord, bless this time and bless uh, the word and the readings this morning. Uh, Lord Jesus, we love you, and we pray in your name. Amen. So, as Pastor Matt read um, some of the, uh, the passages today, some that stuck out as I prepared for uh, communion. And the first one that came to my mind was Luke chapter 5, verse 8. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus's, on Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And there's not a Christian that is growing closer to the Lord that doesn't take this very serious. You know, our sin is what caused him to be crucified, died, but he rose again. So it is that realization as we press closer to Jesus and get closer to him, our sin will be revealed even more so. But Jesus is so gracious and forgives us. And another verse today in Luke chapter 5, verse 12, it said, And it happened when he was in a certain city that, behold, a man who was full of leprosy saw Jesus and fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And this uh, leper came to Jesus, just like we need to come to him for the forgiveness of our sins. We if we are willing, he can do incredible things in our life. Um, as I was in my devotion this, this week, um, thinking about the, the great saints uh, in the Bible, but even more so, the people that really follow Jesus. And the Lord uh, stirred my heart. That, that can be for all of us. It's a surrender. It's a laying down. It's coming to him. And it's remembering the cross and what he did for us. So before we take the elements, which are either on your seat or in front of you, your seat, um, I would just like to ask that we take a moment of silence just to be with the Lord, to see if there's any strongholds of sin that are in our life, to, to confess our sins, because he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins. So I'd like to take that moment now, and then we'll partake of the elements together. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26, Paul writes, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread, <clears throat> and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So, Lord, as we partake in the elements together, Lord, um, 
just bring us to a deeper realization of who you are, Lord, and what you've done here, Lord. We love you, Jesus. Let's partake together.